Hello there, welcome back to the Europolex podcast, the only podcast on your feed that is just dripping with festivity. I'm Ewan Healy, and with me is not my very good friend Gabriel Hedengren, who is travelling back to his home nation of Sweden for holidays. So filling in his shoes is the soothing voice and elfish mischief of our History Corner host, Matthew Nicholson. Hello, hello, yes, uh, I can promise certainly plenty of elfish mischief, and hopefully I can fit inside the shoes all right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm trying to think. I've met you both in real life, but not at the same time. So I'm not sure whether you guys would be fitting each other's shoes. It's a serious concern. Yeah, and I suppose you didn't take measurements of our shoes. It's not very COVID-friendly either, sharing shoes. No, not really in the spirit of this this uh, COVID festive season. No, absolutely. But I know, and I'm imagining some some of those elf shoes, you know, the ones which sort of curl at the end? I'm imagining that's the kind of shoes you're wearing at the moment. Um, can you confirm the rumours? Um, I mean, I don't think they're the most comfortable or, or, or practical. You know, it's, it's very dark these days, so um, I might have to deny those. <laughs> As you might have noticed, we took a little bit of a break over the last few weeks. This wasn't our plan. This wasn't intended, but a few of us have been a little bit unwell. Um, and so we decided that looking after people's health was more important than pumping out uh, juicy news. So we've saved it all up for this episode where we are so tightly jam-packed with news that we are going to be spread over toast. And also, this is the last episode of the year, which is a shame, but we're looking forward to 2022 and we've got very exciting plans uh, for the coming year. And also, it's not the celebration episode per se, but we have been going for two years now. And this is episode 48 of the Europolex podcast. And we're going to have a little bit of a chat later on about what the last two years have done, how what, we, what we've learned and what we're looking forward to in the future. So do stick around for all of that. Before that, here is a deeply unfestive message. Do you want to be one of the volunteers that are behind your blicks in this podcast? We're currently on the lookout for an audiovisual editor that can help our podcast and YouTube team create and edit content like what you're hearing right now. But only better, of course, we're trying to improve all the time. If you're interested in joining our team or know someone who would be, please do reach out to us at podcast at europolex.eu. Europolex is, of course, run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors. Everything we do, including this podcast, is only possible with the help of our supporters, just like you. And if we want to do more, which we do, we need your support. So we've started sharing exclusive discussions and special content and votes on what we should contain in our coming podcasts, all on our Patreon channel. Access all of it from as little as one euro a month and support the work of Europolex. So don't miss out on all that good content and support us on Patreon. And we begin our headlines in Bulgaria, where on the 21st of November, the second round of the presidential election took place, with centre-left incumbent Ruman Radev being re-elected. Radev received 66.7% of the vote, a rise of 7.3 percentage points to his 2016 result, and GERB-backed challenger Anastas Gerjikov received just 31.8%. So really quite a blowout victory for Radev in his uh, re-election battle there. And also interesting is that 1.5% of the voters chose to support neither of the candidates. As in Bulgaria, there is a none of the above option. The result uh, and the re-election was very much expected. And if you want to learn more about where the country stands after the multiple elections this year, you can check out our previous episode in which Bulgarian correspondent Teodora Yovcheva joined us for an in-depth discussion. But before moving on to other electoral news, we should mention that following the parliamentary elections last month, a new government coalition has finally been formed. Kirill Petkov of the newly emerged centrist coalition We Continue the Change, 
or PP, has been approved as Prime Minister with 134 MPs voting yes and 104 voting no. The government is supported and composed of PP, centre-left Bulgarian Socialist Party, Slavi Trifonov's ITN and the centre-right coalition DB. So after multiple elections, the Balkan country has finally reached a new government and no longer needs to remain in the electoral purgatory that has characterised Bulgarian politics for most of, or essentially all of this last year. Absolutely. So big congratulations to uh, Prime Minister Petkov for managing to pull all of that off. In other electoral news, it would be uh, amiss of us not to go to the place with perhaps the most dense occurrences of elections. That is, of course, Switzerland, where Switzerland became the first country to hold a referendum on creating a legal basis for a COVID uh, certificate, COVID pass, to be introduced to facilitate travel abroad and allow events to be held. In this first and only referendum on this so far anywhere in the world, 63% of voters supported the amendment of the COVID-19 Act, which also came with expanding financial support to those affected by the pandemic who had previously received little to no aid. Another two referendums took place. The Nursing Initiative, providing support to universal access to high quality nursing uh, and the judge initiative which introduced a new election process for the selection of federal judges by a committee of experts rather than by the federal assembly while the judge initiative failed to pass with 68 percent voting no the nursing initiative was approved with 61 percent of the vote in other swiss electoral news the canton of freiburg held the second round of its elections for the seven seats of its Council of State on November the 28th, having voted for 110 seats of its Grand Council on November the 7th. Out of seven seats in the Council of State, the centre-right Le Centre and the Liberal PLR each got two seats, the centre-left PS, the Green PES and the right-wing Swiss People's Party all got one each. This month hasn't been one of a massive amount of elections, but thankfully the UK has given us something to speak about by providing two by-elections in Old Bexley and Sidcup in the east of London and North Shropshire in the West Midlands. The first to go to the polls was Old Bexley and Sidcup on the 2nd of December, following the death of the incumbent Conservative MP James Brokenshire, uh, perhaps best known for being the former Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. The Conservatives held the seat, with candidate Louis French getting elected with 51.5% of the vote. But this was significantly lower than the 64.5% that the Conservatives achieved in the 2019 election. But the trend of the seat being a safe Conservative seat since 1970 did carry on. The Labour candidate, Daniel Francis, did get 30.9%, which is the party's highest result in the constituency since 2001, and represented the kind of swing away from the governing party that you would normally expect in a midterm election in the UK. But meanwhile, another by-election in North Shropshire took place on the 16th of December and delivered a much more surprising upset. The seat became open following the resignation of the incumbent MP, Conservative Owen Paterson, who had become embroiled in a corruption scandal, which has engulfed many others uh, in British politics at the moment, but particularly, I think it's, it's worth noting, within the Conservative benches uh, and within uh, the government. The seat has been held by the Conservatives since the early 20th century, but that came to an end as the Liberal Democrats surged to a thumping victory, leapfrogging Labour to win 47.2% of the vote over the Conservatives 316 giving them a majority of 6,000 votes. This result comes at a time when there is significant pressure on Boris Johnson, the Conservative leader and Prime Minister, who's received significant criticism for failing to deal with the Omicron outbreak in the UK, as well as allegations that he and his staff held illegal parties in government buildings throughout COVID lockdowns in 2020. And it's hard to understate the scale uh, of this victory for the Liberal Democrats. 
It's the seventh largest swing towards them uh, in the history of by-elections in the UK. Prior to the Liberal Democrats' coalition with Conservatives in 2010, they tended to be the party that picked up the most protest votes in by-elections like this. So perhaps what we're seeing now is a return to the trend in British politics where the Liberal Democrats continue to achieve these stunning results in by-elections. But perhaps also it's a reflection on wide public dissatisfaction with Boris Johnson at the moment, who has in recent weeks plummeted in the polls. Perhaps the next year in 2022 will give us more indications as to what this by-election can tell us. Moving on now from electoral news, we're going to go to Romania, where the recurring saga in Romanian politics seems to perhaps be coming to an end for now. In the last episode, we discussed how Prime Minister-designate Nicolae Cicia who was supported by the centre-right PNL and the UDMR, gave up his mandate and new negotiations between the centre-left PSD and the centre-right PNL uh, had started for a potential grand coalition. Now, the parties did indeed come to an agreement and the new government composed of the centre-right PNL, the centre-left PSD and the centre-right UDMR altogether uh, has been formed with Nicolae Ciuciua as Prime Minister. The agreement also includes a rotation system for the position of Prime Minister where a PSD candidate will take over in 2023. It's fascinating to see these rotation systems becoming more and more adopted in countries as a result of perhaps fractious coalition uh, negotiations. I think at the moment, I'm right in saying it's Israel and Ireland that are currently awaiting rotations midway through the term as, as a result of these agreements. They're the two countries that come to my mind as well. Yeah, it's, um, I think it'll be interesting to see if this is a trend that continues in future coalition negotiations, because uh, it's certainly something we're seeing right now. Never makes sense to me. Why would why would the party who is going to lose the prime minister position not just simply collapse the coalition? Like I, I don't understand what the the benefit is. That does seem to be what happens quite a lot of the time. Certainly, that was that's been the case in Israel recently, uh, and in Malaysia where there was a similar agreement that that did also collapse before the rotation was due to happen. So I think we've yet to see one of these actually succeed, but maybe we'll be proved wrong next year. Keep an eye on Romania then. Yeah, indeed. Uh, And in other government news, one month after the Czech election, the lead candidate of the right-of-centre coalition Spolu and leader of the centre-right Civic Democratic Party, Peter Fiala, finally took the country's premiership. Due to President Milos Zeman's health, complications uh, around the government's formation uh, has resulted in delays until recently. A ceremony was held with the Prime Minister-designate Fiala and President Zeman in the capital city, separated by plexiglass. Uh, And there were some really stunning images around that. The new government composition was negotiated between the right-of-centre Spolu, consisting of the centre-right ODS, Top 09, and KDU-CSL, and the Pirates and the Mayors and Independence Coalitions, taking a parliamentary majority of 108 out of 200 seats in the legislature. In a few months, Czechia is also expected to preside on the Council of the European Union, a challenge that will test Fiala's government alignment with the Visegrad state's agenda, and potentially bring a new international shift in Central Europe. Keeping on with government formation news, we're going to go to Iceland, where a two-month-long coalition negotiation has resulted in the formation of uh, Katrin Jakobsdottir's second cabinet. The elections took place on September 25th, and the three major parties, the Left Green Movement, the Centre-Right Independence Party, and the Liberal Progressive Party, all retained their top spots and renegotiated their existing coalition to renew it for another four years, with 38 of 63 seats in the Althing, the Icelandic parliament between them. Although Jakobsdottir's party, the left-green movement, lost three seats in September, she remains the head of government, but out of 12 ministries, the left-green movement controls just three to the Progressive Party's four and the Independence Party's 
five. Moving on to Sweden, where, as we discussed last time, the new leader of the centre-left Social Democrats, Magdalena Andersson, was gearing up to take over as Prime Minister with a version of the previous coalition cabinet with the Greens, and a budget tolerated by both the left-wing Left Party and the Liberal Centre Party. Well, on the morning of the 24th of November, Andersson was approved by Parliament as Sweden's first female Prime Minister. And this should have been a historic moment for Sweden, but just hours later, she resigned after her budget was defeated and her coalition partner, the Greens, left the government. And while that sounds a devastatingly bad and brief tenure for a prime minister, Anderson did manage to be successfully approved again as prime minister a few days later, this time leading a minority government composed solely of the Social Democrats. This is just another chapter in Sweden's tumultuous year, with the next parliamentary election scheduled in just nine months away from now. If you want to learn all the back and forth that led to the current situation, do check out our website where our colleague Nasruddin Taibi has written a comprehensive and quite enjoyable piece explaining what exactly took place and what's next for the Scandinavian country. This month has been full of government news and changes in positions of head of government and Austria is a place that's no difference where after uh, just two months the newly appointed Chancellor Alexander Schallenberg of the centre-right ÖVP resigned and went back to his position as foreign minister. Schallenberg, a very close ally of former Chancellor Sebastian Kurz, did so immediately after Kurz announced his resignation as party leader and from politics as a whole, claiming he believes that the head of government and the leader of the Austrian party with the most votes should once again be held by the same person. The following day, the Minister of Interior, Karl Niemer, was appointed acting chairman of the ÖVP and Chancellor of Austria. Niemer has previously been a member of the National Council, the lower house of the Austrian parliament, and the general secretary of the ÖVP. He is a former military officer and is viewed as sharing Kurtz's hard line on immigration and law and order. All this, of course, comes amid a criminal investigation of Sebastian Kurtz on allegations of corruption. But the next elections are some distance away in 2024. Uh, And just crossing the border now for our penultimate headline this year, we go to Germany, where after 16 years and 16 days, Angela Merkel's tenure as Chancellor of Germany came to an end. The not-so-easily-replaced leader handed over the Chancellor office to her Vice-Chancellor, Olaf Scholz, of the centre-left SPD. Scholz was approved as Chancellor by the Bundestag, Germany's lower house of parliament, with 395 votes in favour, 303 against, and six abstentions. He will be leading a coalition government of his centre-left SPD, the Greens, and the Liberal FDP. Of the 16 federal ministries, the SPD will hold eight, including the Interior, Defence and Health Ministries. The Greens will be leading five, including Foreign Affairs and Economics and Climate Protection. And the FDP will be leading four, including Finance and Justice. And our final story of the year is in Netherlands. Now, it took the northwestern European country 273 days, but following the March, <laughs> the March election and weeks and weeks and, well, months of negotiations, almost a year, a new government coalition agreement has been signed. That's right, the centre-right and liberal forces of VVD, D66, CDA and CU will comprise this new majority government, holding 78 seats in the Dutch lower house of parliament. The VVD's Mark Rutte will therefore get a fourth term as prime minister, having first been appointed to the office in October 2010. Even if he doesn't serve a full term, Rutte will most likely become the Netherlands' longest-serving prime minister, which would be a remarkable achievement, especially given that the government crisis that led to the government collapse in January was largely blamed on him personally. 
And now finally, let's look at some polling highlights from across the continent. We start with Ukraine, where a new party made its first appearance with its official name in a parliamentary poll. Rozumna Politika, or Smart Politics in English, is the new political party of the former Speaker of Parliament, Dmitry Rezinkov, who recently quit President Volodymyr Zelensky's Servant of the People party. The new party received 5.7% in the latest Sokis poll, and has subsequently appeared in multiple polls, and uh, for now at least seems to be like it will be present in some form now in Ukraine's political landscape. For another first appearance, we go to Italy, where the anti-lockdown, anti-vaccination M3V appeared in a BD Media poll with 0.4% of the vote. If you are wondering what the M3V acronym stands for, it is, and bear with me here, I'm not an Italian speaker, it is Movimento Vaccini Vogliamo Verita, or Movement Vaccines We Want Truth. Staying in Italy, the other party with a number in their acronym, Movimento Cinque Stelle, got 11% in a Pipoli poll. That is the lowest Giuseppe Conte's party has received in a poll since January 2013. And staying, uh, as it appears we must, on the theme of anti-vaccine and anti-lockdown parties, making the first appearance in polls, we go to Greece, where the latest MRB poll showed Kilan, or the Free People Movement in English, at 1.2%. The same poll also showed the far-right EGTP that has taken a stance against COVID measures at an all-time record high with 2.4%. We should of course note that the electoral threshold in Greece is at 3% and EGTP's leader is in prison for running a criminal organisation as he was a spokesperson and former MP of the neo-Nazi Golden Dawn. After a few days uh, when the poll was conducted, Keelan's leader, who was in uh, the ICU with COVID-19, sadly passed away. Staying in Greece following its leadership race, Central-left Kinal has kept rising in the polls, reaching an all-time high with 17.7% in a Mark poll. For more info on this centre-left party and everything around its leadership election and potential rise, do check out an article on our website, written by our very own managing editor, Polychronis Karampolis. And going from the south to the north, we go to Sweden, where the liberal Liberalerna reached a record low with 2% in a Demoscope poll. This would be the party's worst ever election results, falling below the 4% threshold and failing to gain any parliamentary representation, which would be the first time this had happened to the party since its foundation in 1934. And going from record lows to record highs, we visit our favourite country in this segment, the Netherlands, which is really the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to polling records. A recent INO research poll showed that the National Conservative JA21 reached a record high of 5%, while Eurofederalist Vault reached a record 6.1%. Both parties received three seats in Parliament in the March election. In the same poll, the agrarian BBB, that had received one seat back in March, reached a new record high of 6.1% as well. And for our last polling highlight of the year, sad, we go to France, where Valérie Pécresse, who has just been chosen through a primary runoff to be the centre-right Les Républicains candidate for president, seems to be on the rise, enjoying a convention bump, if you will. Actually, based on an Alab poll, Pécresse could move into the second round of a presidential election next year and defeat incumbent president Emmanuel Macron 52 to 48%, making her the first female president of France, of course. Now, with far-right Eric Zimbo announcing his candidacy and the creation of his own 
personal political party, Reconquête, it might be that the far-right vote is split enough for the uh, Republican candidate to make it through. But of course, it's still very, very early days. We shouldn't uh, let a possible new candidate bounce turn us into uh, pundits calling the race too early, even though that is quite an enjoyable thing to do. And that is all the news and polling highlights we have for this segment. Thanks very much for listening and stick around for a discussion about what we've done this year and what's to come next on the Europelex podcast. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast and want to help us grow, be sure to subscribe and drop us a review on whatever platform it is you're listening to us on. And of course, tell your friends, your fellow political nerds all about us. That would mean the absolute world. We love making this podcast and we love it when you guys love it. So if you've got an idea for a segment, thoughts on a topic that we should be covering, or even if you just want to say hi to us, drop us an email, podcast at europelex.eu. Europelex now has merch. Do you want to support us or you're polling an election nerd like us and just want everybody to know about it? Head on to europelex.redbubble.com and check out all our mugs, maps, t-shirts, stickers, and more. We're really excited about this and our team is working on more designs all the time. Let us know how you like them. So two years after we first started, we're now at 48 regular episodes, eight History Corners, and a couple more bonus episodes on top of that as well. All in all, that's over 30 hours of recorded podcasts, and about 35 guests from over 20 countries, as well as 25 of our Europe-Elex colleagues that have joined us in discussions on every election this continent has had in the last two years. So Ewan, out of these two years of hosting the podcast, do you have any favourite highlights or favourite interviews that um, you look back on particularly fondly? That is a great question. I mean, it's hard to say about a favourite one, but it's just mad to think how far we've come. I remember the, the crackly audio and the bad technology that we used when we first started trying to get to grips with how to make a podcast. And then now here we are and I feel like we're a little bit less crackly and it's still quite incompetent but definitely better than we used to be and I was just looking back over our list of uh, episodes and gosh we've had some chats um, and I was just trying to uh, think about a favorite and it's quite hard one I really enjoyed was back in March of this year was interviewing um, Lawrence Dassen from uh, Vault Netherlands that was really really exciting it was exciting to chat to a party who are now obviously ascendancies may be a bit strong, but have been steadily increasing their support over the last few months as they gained uh, representation for the first time. And it's the first time, of course, as well, that the Vault as a party had received representation in any country at the national level. So that was pretty exciting to sort of be a little bit ahead of the curve, I think, um, than other uh, English language podcasts of this type. It was pretty exciting. We've also had some really fascinating uh, academics on. I remember... Oh, gosh, it's quite a long way back. But I remember talking to Ulrike Guerreau on our Europe Day special back in May 2020. That was very, very fun. Um, Nicolas Tsifakis is another. And I mean, it's really hard to say because there's been so many. They're all great. They're all great. That's the truth. It's the truth. They're all great. Every single one. What about yourself? Obviously, you've been a part of a few of our regular episodes, but obviously your main uh, baby is History Corner. Have you had a, a favorite History Corner that you've liked? Uh, preparing? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's hard to say as well, because genuinely, I think every election is incredibly interesting. Uh, and something that I've, I've discovered with the History Corner, and one of the joys of doing it, is that even an election that might seem quite dull on the surface actually has a lot going on and a lot of dynamics once you dig in and research a bit more and you find out 
you know, what were the issues that were being discussed in, I don't know, 1945, or what, what were the, what was the political culture like? What were, what was the party system? But I think probably the ones that I, I've definitely found more interesting to do have been uh, when our, our patrons have, have led us towards these uh, much more kind of foundational significant elections. So for instance, the History Corner that we published in April on the 1906 election in Russia, which was the very first legislative election to be held in Russian history uh, and came after the the failed, of course, revolution in 1905 uh, and featured quite a lot of political drama um, in such an interesting time in in Russian and world politics. Um, I think that was probably definitely the one that I I enjoyed researching and, and writing the most. But there's been something that I've learned uh, and, and, and discovered and found to enjoy in, in all of the History Corners I've done so far. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously it's uh, such a joy that History Corner has been able to find its own little uh, niche, its own little section as our bonus episode. Its own corner, you might say. Hey, hey, its own little corner. Yeah, it's almost like that's why we call it that. I mean, we've obviously talked about all sorts of different countries. And I think one thing that obviously is different about us as a podcast, um, not to... Uh, bang our own drum here but we do cover elections from uh, the big and the small countries in in the same way um we know this year we've uh, covered germany we've covered san marino um uh, and of course others do any elections stand out to you that we've covered ones that you really enjoyed or just one that you've really enjoyed watching this year yeah i mean uh speaking about the equal opportunities that we provide to elections um something that i really enjoyed was in september when we had that mammoth month of elections from all across the continent while some of my colleagues were, were covering for the podcast and also elsewhere in europe elects they were covering elections in germany or in russia or in norway i was uh, the, the ones that i focused on were in uh, iceland and the isle of man and, um, you know, of course, on, on a global scale, these elections don't attract quite as much interest. But I really enjoyed the opportunity to give these elections um, the profile that Europlex was able to and to be able to uh, share with people the, the electoral and political dynamics of these places. So I think I think that was really fun to do. But that said, probably in terms of the ones that stand out, I think it does have to be Germany for a country that is often branded as, you know, having quite dull, unexciting politics. I think this year was a real roller coaster where you ended up having three potential candidates for chancellor that at various points seemed entirely viable. An election which would have anyway been momentous for seeing the end of Angela Merkel's 16 years in power. He then had this astonishing rise for Olaf Scholz and the SPD uh, and now uh, this this new traffic light uh, three-party coalition for the first time in German politics. I think it's just been a really interesting ride to follow and uh, and I'm incredibly interested to see where that's going to go in the next year. Absolutely. It's got us all asking, is this the death of the death of social democracy? I am very excited to see what, you know, if there are knock-on effects for social democrats across Western Europe who, yeah, I mean, we've, on this podcast and across all mediums of political analysis over the last decade, have spent most of our lives talking about, quote-unquote, pasokification. We can now add a prefix to make it even harder to say anti-pasokification. <laughs> Absolutely. Can can everyone Schultzify? <laughs> can any country Schultzify their politics? There are so many elections that we talk about here, and I just I just love talking about getting to the details because these, you know, obviously, like you say, things that have to change the world uh, and be, you know, the biggest and most important ever to be interesting elections, and to also, you know, change people's lives and be significant to people on a daily basis. And so we've had the opportunity to chat about lots of very interesting elections in small places, and one that I remember always 
very fondly is the chat that I got to have back in February with Christian Frommel from uh, the Liechtenstein Institute. That was really, really exciting. I knew nothing, basically, about Liechtenstein and its politics before I started researching to prepare for that. And we got to hear about a very exciting election, which is really interesting. I would recommend if you want to know about that, I think it's a little bit of a timeless interview because we obviously have to crack right back to the beginning and and, and understand the, the methodology and the political culture in Liechtenstein because we didn't know very much about it, or at least I didn't. Um, and so if you want to le- learn about Liechtenstein, I can make a good little bit of Christmas listening for you. If, you're, if that's the kind of thing you want to do, it's probably more interesting than chatting politics to your family on Christmas Day. So would recommend it. So we have exciting plans for the podcast over the next year, and there will be no shortage of elections to cover. But are there any electoral events or elections? And of course, we can't see everything coming ahead of time. But is there anything that you're particularly looking forward to or interested in covering over the coming year? Well, obviously, the big ticket event is the French presidential election and the French parliamentary elections, of course, not to be forgotten. I, of course, think, gosh, that's very exciting, but it's not... Uh, at the top of my mind, I think. I think there are just as many very exciting elections happening elsewhere in Europe. Obviously, to be self-indulgent for a second, we've of course got UK, a big set of elections in the UK, but actually to be, this isn't just me saying this as a as a UK inhabitant, but also we've got a very significant election, I think, coming up in, in Northern Ireland, whose regional parliament is up for election. Uh, that's definitely worth watching as the the nation's been without a government for a while and there's a bit of political disarray. So we might see a bit of realignment there. We've also got national parliament elections in Sweden. I think that's one that I'm really excited for. Obviously, we've talked today about Magdalene Anderson and it'll be interesting to see how she fares in the coming uh, days and weeks. What about you? Have you got any other thoughts? Yeah, I mean, on a self-indulgent point as well, I think the local elections in uh, in Scotland will certainly be interesting. We'll both get a vote in those. Uh, you know, elections where you can vote is pretty exciting. Um, I think... Hungary will be uh, definitely worth watching, where um, there's going to be this struggle by the now united opposition to try and unseat Viktor Orban after uh, been what 12 years in power by then. Keeping on the theme of small, exciting islands, uh, there's going to be an election in Jersey, which uh, I'm certainly looking forward to covering, and then uh, Malta around the same time, so I think that might be the theme in June. We're also going to be having elections in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which um, I think given recent political developments uh, and a bit of anxiety about the current stability of the country. I I think those are certainly going to be quite important elections to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Big, big events going on in Bosnia. So I think these elections will be, well, people's opportunity to uh, voice their uh, thoughts on that and so it's going to be pretty uh, exciting to watch um, and of course there'll be snap elections which are always some of the most uh, exciting we don't know who's going to collapse we don't know what uh, calamity is going to befall any of our heads of uh, government or state in the coming years um, a calamity I meant politically I'm not wishing death or injury on any of our Glad heads of state just want to make that clear but there's going to be lots of very exciting things to keep an eye out for uh, political events and obviously with Omicron rampaging through our streets as we speak uh there's going to be lots more covid related news uh, and covid related political consequences to talk about over the next 12 months as well if you had to guess which country do you think is uh next in line or, or most likely to see a, a snap election Ooh, what a question uh, i can go first if you like italy's probably got to be quite high up there in that the the government that's being led by Mario Draghi, while it seems to be popular, it'll be interesting to see if that can continue. And, and Italy's no stranger to political instability. Um, Spain, you know, is not known for its political stability. 
Yeah. Spain is always an option. Spain is is definitely an option. Uh, I think that's definitely something to work out, especially with the fact that uh, the Social Democrats are relying on uh, people to their left. There could be instability that particularly as the things progress over the coming year, especially if more government direct intervention in the economy to deal with COVID consequences is required. That could be uh, controversial there. Staying in Iberia, we've got Portuguese elections, uh, of course, coming up as well in January. So they'll be watching Iberia anyway. So that's pretty uh, significant to look at. But perhaps we'll see a little bit of hesitation to go into that kind of thing, a, a snap election in many countries, just, just because of surges in COVID cases. People might be a little bit more hesitant, though surges in COVID cases haven't tended to dissuade people thus far. So maybe it's maybe it will continue in the same way. Mm. We'll just have to see. Uh, and to throw one last very unfair question at you, do you have any predictions for who might emerge as, as president in France? <laughs> oh, I'm not sure I would dare to be as brave um, as do that. I, however, think that the uh, current situation on the French, French right um, benefits, benefits Emmanuel Macron more than it does damage him. And I would think between the three sort of prominent right-wing candidates at the moment obviously uh, Zemmour and Le Pen being one being two together as a far-right candidates and, and uh, sort of a regular right candidate being uh, Pécresse but I still think Emmanuel Macron is, is the man to beat and I think there's uh, we've got to be people would have to be careful to write him out of the game uh, just because he's been well just because he's been so unpopular France French politicians have a way of retaining popularity despite being unpopular anyway yeah, France introduced me incidentally to the term uh, moderate far right recently, which uh, I feel like uh, <laughs> describing, uh, of course, Marine Le Pen uh, in comparison to Eric Zemmour as the, as the not moderate far right. So which I, I feel that's like a bit of an indication of where French politics are at the moment. But no, I, I agree with you. I think Macron probably is the candidate to beat. And I have noticed that his approval ratings have been creeping up ever so slightly over recent months. Um, he's still more, uh, there's, there's still more people that disapprove of him than approve. Um, but certainly by comparison to his immediate predecessors, he's not in too bad shape, uh, I think, going into the re-election. And we'll have to see if, if that holds or if any of the other candidates are able to gain any momentum in, in the exact way that he did uh, in the months prior to the election in 2017. Yes, absolutely. That's all that we've got to look forward to in the coming 12 months. So do stick around with the podcast. Tell your friends. Give them a gift. Now, this is a very exciting one. You can get Europe Elects Podcast branded merch for your family and friends as little gifts over the holiday break, either for Christmas or just because they deserve the best kind of branded gift. So if you head over to uh, redbubble.com forward slash EuropeLex, you will see the beautiful podcast logo that you see on your phone screen right now, and you'll be able to get everything from mugs to aprons to mouse mats to stickers to everything you could possibly want with that lovely logo on. And if you do, if you do, why not take a photo, send us a little at on Twitter, let me know. I'd love to see the kind of podcast merch you've got and how you're using it. But before we say goodbye for the end of the year, sad reacts only, we want to say a massive thank you uh, to all of you guys for listening. We, we've had thousands of you this year tune into the podcast from over 55 countries, and we really appreciate you sticking with us through the year in what we know is a very crowded podcast market. So we very much appreciate you uh, sticking with us. We hope we brought a little bit of joy and, and humor to political coverage when it's not always seemed the most uh, joyful or happy to keep an eye on. 
We'd also like to thank all the friends of the podcast that have come on these last two years, who've shared their expertise with us. And also, we'd like to thank you for the fact that you're so open to share this with our audience and allow us to annoy you with the questions through expeditious Zoom calls. This has been instrumental in the quality of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. We couldn't do it without you. And if we didn't have you, it would just be, well, me and Gabriel and Matthew in a bunker wittering on to ourselves about inside jokes and things we argue about in group chats. So thank you very much for coming on. And of course, a big thank you to our amazing podcast team who we list at the end of every episode. If you stay till the end to the outro, you will hear their wonderful names said. And if you stay even further, sometimes there's a little little bonus couple of seconds of weird noises that we've made during the recording. That's a little little fact for you there. If you go back to our old podcast, you'll find little weird noises at the end of the podcast to listen to. But that's not the point. Thank you to our amazing team. We've got so many people that we could thank, and you'll hear all their names later on, but most notably want to give a big thank you to our managing editor, who is the man who cajoles us into actually doing work and not just talking about doing work. So Polychronis Karampalas, thank you so much for all you do for the podcast and for Europolex as a whole. And of course, we thank the whole Europolex family for allowing us to be part of what we do. So do, dear listener, stick around for next year. Keep listening and have a very safe warm and enjoyable winter christmas festive season and a very very happy new year see you next year thank you for listening to the europolex podcast to stay up to date with european politics make sure you subscribe and of course follow us on twitter facebook instagram linkedin telegram v contacta and youtube we're spreading out wherever we can so do please follow us there's no excuse not to anymore you can find us at europelex.eu and at europelex across all social media and at europe underscore lex on instagram see you next time you've been listening to the europelex podcast hosted by me ewan healy and my colleague gabriel hedengren the managing editor was polychronis karampalas the script was written by our hosts and our writing team, Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kukouris, Guillaume Ferreira de Senda, Yanis Ashakian, and Yavi Debad. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything we do wouldn't be possible without our patrons from Patreon.